You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Chris Claremont, recommending that you take a listen to Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. We are back with round three with Chris Claremont. This is the third time on on the show. And this time we are going to be talking about New Mutants, covering roughly the first 20 or so issues of the series that he wrote. Uh, and we discuss things like uh, creating the series with artist Bob McLeod, which I have to say, if you haven't checked out the Bob McLeod interview yet, uh, search through my archives there. I posted it a couple of weeks ago. It's really great. And then uh, we also talk about when Bill came on the title and they started uh, ramping things up a bit with uh, with just a more creative style and, and that kind of thing. Uh, we talk about the Magic Limited series. And it just uh, it, it's just a wonderful time to talk with Chris, as always. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to get him back sometime soon to talk about the second half of, of his time on New Mutants. But in the meantime, uh, we'll have a bunch of other interviews coming up, including um, pretty soon... Jim Starlin. I'm going to be posting that interview probably early May, so be uh, on the lookout for that one. Uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash thunderquack and make a, uh, a donation to support us so we can keep these podcasts up and running. If you like what we're doing, we'd appreciate your support. So here is Chris Claremont talking about New Mutants. <laughs> So what was your process creating the new mutants? Well, basically, we'd had we had the established X-Men team, but one of the challenges was that the initial concept of the X-Men was structured around Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. And the new X-Men, for better or worse, the way Dave Cockrum and I evolved it from the original pitches that he and Len Wein put forward were that this team evolved into a much older and more established group of characters than the original X-Men had been. In Len's original thought, Wolverine, was, for example, was a much younger character. He viewed him as basically an adolescent, a late adolescent, high school, maybe barely college. Oh, wow. Dave and I saw him somewhat differently and from my perspective. If he's an officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, which is how he was presented in Giant Size 1, that means he's got to be an adult, uh, which means early, middle 20s. And the way Dave drew him in both Giant Size and then into the first arc of X-Men leading up to uh, 100, I guess, he came across as a much older character, visually. Right. So uh, it it seemed like a 
natural paradigm to just say, well, why don't we push it to the farthest end of the spectrum? He's not only older, he is the oldest. <laughs> yeah, right. So then New Mutants was you bringing this back kind of full circle a little well, bit? Well, the, the, yeah, I mean, in that storm, for example, when we started was in her early 20s, but we gave her a specific birth date, 1950. Uh, Nightcrawler was in his early 20s. Colossus was the youngest at 18. Thunderbird, being a Vietnam veteran, was easily in his 20s at that point. Right. So they, they started, Banshee was definitely in his 20s, if not, well, actually older. So they were, they were not only older in the sense of, of physical maturity, but established in the use of their powers. They didn't really need a school parameter. Uh, the Danger Room was useful in, in working together as a team in honing their individual uh, skills and their group skills, but they didn't need to learn anything along those lines. Professor Xavier Charlie, as a teacher, was in a way redundant. So we began thinking, you know, Kitty came along, but she was, since we had nowhere to put her, we put her in the X-Men, and it didn't, you know, it seems silly that, well, Charlie was occupied at that point anyway with the Brood Saga. So uh, long story short, we didn't have any kids to serve as students in the school. So the thought began, we began kicking around the idea of, well, maybe we need a team of new mutants. And uh, it all got catalyzed by the discovery that another group of creators at Marvel were thinking in terms of creating a team of young mutants and doing them in uh, as an offshoot of the Avengers or somewhere else. And we decided to, Weezy Simonson, who was our, the editor at the time, and I decided we, we weren't going to let that happen. <laughs> so that, that catalyzed our focus, uh, our thoughts, our determination, and we turn the new mutants from concept into reality. Wow. And again, the, the, fun, the functional rationale for the team was they're kids. What do, ki- what do kids do? They go to school. Mm-hmm. And that was it. This was, and my thought was what was fun here was essentially like going to any, for want of a better term, professional school. This is where one learns the use and perfection of one's special abilities, whether it's shooting a basketball or playing a flute or dancing or whatever. Right, yeah. Um, And I feel like the way you present this team is that they're even more, they're kids even more than the original X-Men were kids when Stan was writing them. Like, they just feel more youthful. Well, they were. I mean, uh, the the X-Men... Bearing in mind that the Stan's perception of students in a in a any kind of school setting in 1962 63 when this was when this was hammered together is significantly different from Weezy's and mine and Bob McLeod's perception of students in 19 oh uh, 80 80 yeah uh, 82 we're looking at a te- 20 year transition right and that's that's a world in especially in those 20 years but also more specifically 
the limiting factor of both X-Men and new X-Men was Stan's paradigm in 1962 when he was thinking all this up was classic comic books. In other words, a bunch of white middle-class people, one of whom was a girl. <laughs> right. And the differentiation between the people, between the characters was that one was maybe urban, one was rural, one was big, one was not so big. The new mutant, the new, uh, new X-Men was a broader spectrum in that Nightcrawler was from Germany, Colossus was from Russia, Aurora, aside from being the only girl at that time, the only female, was from Africa. Thunderbird was from uh, the American Southwest. Uh, Wolverine was from Canada. Okay, that's a slightly more, a slightly broader and more international template, but still relatively limited in terms of possibilities. With the New Mutants, the intent from the get-go was to push that paradigm as far as we could get away with. So, again, bearing in mind we're talking 1979, 1980, when the backstories were all set. In terms of Sean, Karma, she's a Vietnamese boat person, a refugee right. from the war. Very topical okay. at the time, yes. Yeah, especially since she debuted in, in Marvel Team, Team Up. Up Annual, yeah. brilliantly portrayed by Frank Miller. Her whole life structure is built around the, the trauma of immediately post-Vietnam War. Uh, so we have her. We have Danny Moonstar, an American Indian. We have Rain Sinclair, a Scots werewolf. Right then, we, we are establishing a new trope because half the team are female. Right. Then we have Sam Guthrie, who's, yes, he's American, but he's from West Virginia. He's poor white American, yeah. which no one had seen before, really. Then we have Bertha da Costa, Bobby da Costa, who's the rich kid on the team, but he's Brazilian. Worse than that, he's Brazilian mixed race. Right. It's a, an amazing mix of people. Oh, and then in fairly short order, we, we bring in Magma, who, again, outwardly appears European, but in reality, she's mixed-race ancient Roman slash Inca. The intent was, with both X-Men and, but to much, a much more significant extent, New Mutants, to broaden the, the genetic variety of the cast as much as humanly possible. Because for me, that was what made it so much fun, was discovering new people, new cultures, new ways of looking at things, and then seeing how all these elements interacted. Right. I mean, it wasn't simply that, for example, Colossus was Russian, but he was a patriotic Russian at a time when Russia and America were deadly enemies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Wow. So where did Bob McLeod fit into all of this? We needed an artist. He was the artist. He fit into it in a in a fundamental and essential sense because he provided the visuals mm -hmm. for each of the concepts. So how closely did you work with him for designing these characters? Well, very. I mean, I wrote fairly detailed prose descriptions of, of who they were and how they fit together. And then we sent them to Bob and, and um, 
we worked you know worked it out from there. It's just basically the same as one did with any artist on, on, on any book at the time. Mm-hmm. In those days, crafting characters and comic stories was dealt with, considered much more of a mutual collaboration between two fairly equal creative partners. It was not a sense where one writes a detailed full script and you throw it out to any artist and they produce a finished product. In this case, it was Bob bringing his own instincts, his own sense of who and what they were, these people were, to the table and spinning it on from there. What sort of things did you draw from Stan's original X-Men uh, if, if anything, uh, that influenced the New Mutants here? Well, the costumes, the school, the concept of the school. But even there, we we warped the concept because even though Charlie had brought them all together, the student had gone out and collected the students, the MacGuffin, the surprise, the the tragic, if one wished to look at it that way, subtext was that Charlie at that time had been infected by the brood. Right. So he wasn't gathering a bunch of kids to teach out of the kindness of his heart. He was a predator gathering, pre- gathering tasty prey. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. So if one wanted to do a what if, what if the X-Men hadn't come back and, to rescue the kids, what, what would have happened if Charlie had turned them into brood? Right. Wow. Because the X-Men's return... In um, 165? Um, 167. No, close. Yep. Basically was, don't be scared, but you guys are in deadly danger. We're here to kick, kick ass and save you. And that's exactly what happened. Right. So when you, when you introduced New Mutants... Um, the the monthly series there's there's definitely a sense of you kind of need to read both of these books at the same time together. Um, there's a lot of interplay between the characters and the the plot lines. Well, I I would I would actually take a small measure of issue with that. It made for a richer tapestry. Yep. And they it was interlinked because they live they basically live in the same compound the school. And there, there is a measure of interaction, but both series existed independently of the other. One could read New Mutants and not read the X-Men. One could read the X-Men and not read New Mutants. Right. It's just if you wanted to read them both, ideally from my perspective as a creator, I wanted you to read them both. It gave you a more fulfilling vision of the scene, the characters, the world they live in, but it wasn't necessary. The key difference between the two was the X-Men's role in life was to save the world, which they did with ridiculous frequency. Yeah, right. The New Mutants was just to learn their, their abilities. They were not ever intended conceptually to be superheroes. It's just that circumstances kept throwing them into situations where they had to become superheroes. Right. And... The saleable aspect, I suppose, the marketable aspect of New Mutants compared to X-Men was the New Mutants more often than not in the process of saving the day in the issue screwed up. 
they made mistakes. They got hurt. People got hurt. They learned things. They occasionally had to be rescued themselves. Mm -hmm. That's why they wore the common uniform of the school rather than individual outfits like the X-Men. And that's why I think in a couple of annuals 10 years down the road, the big moment was we are going out to act as an independent team of heroes. Therefore we'll put on our graduation costumes. And that gave us the, gave me the cheap excuse of having art Adams design a whole bunch of really cool outfits for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So there's Marvel has this new graphic novel series going on, um, a larger format, nice, um, uh, like Marvel color. Uh, whose idea was it to bring New Mutants into that rather than start it in a monthly book? Archie Goodwin as a necessity. Yeah, it was never meant to be. A, it was never meant to be a graphic novel. Certainly not in that concept. If we had intended the first issue of New Mutants to be a graphic novel, it would have been a totally different story. Oh, from my perspective, basically the the first X Men graphic novel was was always meant to be God Loves Man Kills. Okay. The X-Men canon graphic novel, I should say. And if I'd had my way, if we'd done a New Mutants graphic novel, I would have tried to define it in those terms, do a graphic novel that was totally unlike the series, but would be as a standalone, if you'd ever only read one New Mutants story in your life, this would be it. However, one of the realities of publishing in those days is it is the ultimate epitome of Murphy's Law. Whatever could go wrong did go wrong. And in that case, <laughs> a graphic novel that they'd committed to that had been, that space had been blocked into the printing commitments of the company didn't arrive. Uh -oh. And so we had to, we had literally to slam together the New Mutants graphic novel in something like two months. Wow. From concept to, to finish. That's a testament to what makes Bob McCloud so, so exceptionally, dependably good. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, if nothing else justified his existence, getting that novel out on, on, on schedule was it. Yeah, and still maintaining quality. Like, you look at it and it's just fantastic. Well, no, that's it. And still, yeah. you know, and still making it a damn good, you know. Two months. Wow. So was that, had you written yeah. it already at that time, or was it, did you have to, like... We'd structured it. Uh, no, no. Oh. When I say start to finish, I'm not kidding. Wow, that's incredible. We talked about the character. No, we, we were actually working on the, orig on, the, on the first issue, which was, a, was supposed to be, the first issue was going to be a double-sized, 30-page intro to everybody, the graphic novel. Right. And then suddenly, we had to turn it into a 48-page mega event. <laughs> Boy. Wow. Never so, the whole moment in the house of ideas. Yeah, yeah. What was the fan reaction from the graphic novel? Did you, I know you don't have instant reactions because it wasn't the days of the internet or anything, but. Uh, no, it sold well. Yeah. It sold really well. Everybody loved the characters. That's great. Loved the characters, loved the stories, even if we hadn't already committed to, to it as a series, that the novel itself would have justified it. Great. The advantage was we could, we could go from the novel to the series. All we had to do was give Bob a month to like recover, <laughs> yeah. so probably longer than a month, and then hit the ground running with the series.
because unlike X-Men, Uncanny, which started out as a bi-monthly because no one knew what was, what was happening or what, how it would be received, New Mutants hit the ground fully committed to a monthly schedule. Mm-hmm. And while Bob is really good, he's not a Buscema or a Kirby when it comes to like slamming stuff out in the blink of an eye. Right. Monthly title he can do, but a monthly title on top of a double, you know, of a fifty-page graphic novel. Yeah, that's a on top of a honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, it was an adventure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so once you hit the ground running with the series, um, you quickly introduced Magma. Um, a few issues in now, what was uh How come she? Sorry, how come she didn't uh, appear at the beginning? Was it? Was it that this was an idea you had after the original team had been formed? No. I was thinking up characters. We were heading towards the ancient Rome story, and things just evolved. I mean, in my approach to structuring series is part forethought, part inspiration. It's you, one tries to, okay, what, 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 are, we, what are we doing next? We're going to... South America, what happens in South America? Well, we're going to run into ancient Incas. What happen, what's with the ancient Incas? Well, we have ancient Romans. Huh? <laughs> well, because the whole idea there was to introduce Selene as their, one of the, the team's primo villains to uh, update the Hell, Hellfire Club. So it, part of it is, inspir- as I said, part is inspiration, part is planning. So then you created this character and... and... Liked her so much, you just kept on kept on bringing her back. No, I mean she was always going to be around, but part of it was start we starting working with the book. The book was started with me working with editor Louise Simonson. Shortly into its run, Louise moved on to be to full time writing, and her position as editor of the X Canon was taken over by Anne Nascenti. At the same time, Bob moved on and was replaced with Sal Buscema. All of the Nova Roma stories were structured around Sal's art and, uh, to a certain extent, Joan Brigman. And again, my visual of that was to, to come up with a concept of Nova Roma that was a synergy, a synthesis of ancient Roman and ancient Incan cultures. Unfortunately, what ended up on paper was primarily um, classic Rome. Right. In the Andes. But then the next thing that happened with the team, the fundamental breakout moment, was Bilson, Kevich, and I sat down to do a three-part, the three-part Demon Bear saga and had so much fun that he decided to stick around for a year. <laughs> and that was where the book just... No in kidding. the same sense that everyone talks about how good as the X-Men was, it was my synergy with John and John Byrne and Terry Austin and later Paul Smith that broke it out of the mainstream. Bill did the same thing with New Mutants. That yeah. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. Nothing like it has been seen since, really. Yeah, it is just and incredible. And we had more fun than is probably legal. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about, about um, joining with Bill on this story? Well, we were just bullshitting one afternoon and uh i pitched an idea and he liked it the demon bear and so we did it and i think what ann and i were thinking of was we do this story 
at, and at the same time look for a more contemporary, kid-friendly penciler. The challenge with Sal's work was that he, it looked like everything else, yeah. and I didn't want that. Uh, you know, I wanted this to be very much a kid-centric book. That that there there needed to be a totally different visual sense to the characters and to the moment. Well, you certainly went in the opposite direction. Then <laughs> that was the key with Bill. He yeah. totally understood and embraced the idea of, that they were kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, the same sense that that Arthur Adams in in the uh, Asgardian giant size, uh, we did. Yes, did that. There's always a sense of unfinished about them because, you know, Sam hasn't quite grown up. You know, none of them have grown up yet mm-hmm. or at that point. Therefore, they could go in a whole bunch of different directions. They could make mistakes. They could be, they could be tempted. And in this case, this was a, a really defining moment for, um, for Danny Moonstar, uh, something that you've been playing with since almost the beginning since of the series. Since she came to the team. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it, exactly. So tell me a little bit more about Moonstar and the the arc that you gave her here. In the Marvel Universe, everybody lives in New York. All the heroes live in New York. It's all basically the same visual trope. Uh, Manhattan, lots of big buildings and lots of rectangular streets. Right. Um, Danny is from a completely different place, a completely different physical perception of the world it's it's wide open spaces it's prairies and mountains it's things that lurk in the shadows and uh, in her case the things that are in the shadows are predators and they're coming after her yeah and the thing that bill could do that at that time no other artist seemed able to was create, I mean, if you go back to the first or second issue when Bob is drawing the book, she's having nightmares and she's scared and the shadows are coming for her. In this case, it's Professor Xavier's primal identity as a brood. Right. It's scary, but, and the but is that it looks like other visual tropes that have been seen in, in, in stories before and since. What was, inc- to me, incredibly cool about that first issue that Bill drew is the sense of reality was both heightened in the way Danny was presented, but exaggerated and emphasized in the way the world around her was presented. So that while the story started out normal, the deeper you got into it to the moment when she grabs her bow and goes out into the darkness to hunt down the bear and confronts the bear. And suddenly this is a, this isn't just a bear. This is a bear the size of a skyscraper. Yeah. And then it wakes, you know, she kills it and she feels, yes, I've won. And then she kills it and then it wakes up and things go downhill from there. And you build up to that incredible last image of the team rushing out in the middle of the snowstorm to find her literally broken and blood-soaked at the bottom of this this heartbreaking full-page splash. Yeah. 
and that was what Bill, you know, Bill found a way to present this with the impact of a brilliant film. And then again, you know, we sh- with each issue, the next issue, she comes charging into the, emer- the emergency room. Bill found a way to present the characters so that their physical presence echoed their emotional state. The more scared Rain got, the smaller she looked, the more gangly uh, Sam became. You know, and then by the, the end of that, as we shift into the third issue, the double spread that opens that up, where you suddenly, the kids suddenly find themselves in this weird-ass dreamscape with the demon bear and the, and the, the nurse and, the, and the, the cop and things getting crazier and crazier by the moment. It was just like, whoa! Yeah. You had one, for me, writing it, I f- suddenly had a sense that I was actually participating in the action. Okay. Which almost never happens in comics. Wow. You always have that fourth wall of the screen. And for me, that was the first time I'd ever, see, I'd ever experienced a book where the fourth wall wasn't there. And he picked up even further with the double issue a few issues later where we introduced Warlock. And you, right. you'd open the book, and there's the double spread of being welcomed to the girls' night at the mansion. And again, the whole point there was to establish... Yes, it's a school for gifted youngsters, but you know what happens with schools in a in a small suburban town? Everybody hangs out together. <laughs> yep. This is the thing. Like this is the thing I kept we kept trying to do in the in the mutants. That once Weezy and I weren't on the book anymore as writers, it stopped happening. Yeah. You never had any interaction between Xavier's school and any of the other schools in Salem Center, which I think was such a a primal waste of potential material and stories. Because how else do you best exemplify what the kids are fighting for, but at the same time, the difference between them and the world around them, if they don't interact with other people, if they don't hang out at the mall together, if they don't have friends, for God's sake, (laughs) or rivals, for God's sake. These are people People are social animals, and and the whole the whole subtext of the X Men as a trope is inclusion. How do we be? How do we establish ourselves? Present ourselves as part of a community? Right. And if you can't do that, then what's the point of the book? And so, Warlock is the definite example there. Well, I mean, they all are examples based on their backstories and uh, and where they come from. Um, sort of all outcasts in their own different ways and different social circles. Um, And then Warlock is definitely a more obvious metaphor for that sense of, because of just his look and who he is. Yeah. But, uh, but but the flip side of the coin is Doug Ramsey, who is just as much a mutant as everybody else in the team, but what's his power? He's a translator. He's the ultimate translator, except that in the same way that, Wolverine ends up drafting people every now and then because he needs them. He did it to Kitty. He did it to, to uh, Jubilee. The mutants have to draft Doug because they need someone to teach, to communicate with Warlock. Mm-hmm. And once he becomes part of the team, he's part of the team. You can't, you know, once you've crossed over 
to see what's behind the curtain in the Emerald City, you can't go back. Right. But at least in the 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 run, well, as as Weezy ended up telling the story, eventually that led to his death. Yeah. Which you know there are consequences to actions, and that I think that was something we both took very primally to heart with Dark Phoenix, and which should have you know, I, as I said, I hated because Doug was one of one of the characters I cared a lot about. I really, really, really was so pissed that he died. <laughs> On the other hand, shit happens. Yeah. And you you know, sometimes the good die pain you know, it's just as heartbreakingly as 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 the bad. Yeah. And that is a level of the series that doesn't exist anymore, sadly. But the flip side of the coin, that's one of the things that was all wrapped up in Danny re- during the Asgard story rescuing Moonstar, the the flying the the Pegasus, and bonding with it mm-hmm. without a clue that of who what the horse represented. She was just saving this beautiful horse, and and you know she's she's Plains Indian. She loves horses. Horses, there that's their bond. Except that as a consequence, she be, she is she becomes a Valkyrie. Yeah, and that in turn deeply affects her life as the series moves on. But that's, you know, that's the fun. The thing with the New Mutants is they end up making choices that without any thought or imagination, anticipation, anxiety of the consequences, it's just, I have to do this. It's right. I'm, I'm going to save the horse. Oh, God. What do you mean it means I'm this? <laughs> but you're stuck with it. Yep. Now what? To me, that was fun. Just before we go, I want to get a few quick words about the Magic Limited series. Was this something, because this is a story that's told sort of between the panels of, a, of uh, an X-Men mm-hmm. issue. Was it always your intention to, to spin it off into a limited series and expand it further? I think it was six and one half of the other. I, I think they, uh, again, Weezy felt we needed to explain what happened. Okay. So you, you were just going to leave it hanging? Well, I was going to do it in, in terms of suggestions. But again, the thing, the problem or the challenge with Eliana was always, is she really a good guy or a bad guy? Right. Forgive the sexism of the phrase. She spent her entire life, basically, half her life, the formative half of her life, dancing around Belasco in, in limbo. And she is now Lord, ruler of limbo which is not a nice place. Right. And the thing, you know, the thing we keep coming back to, and again, this was, this was where, for me, having Magneto as head of the School for Gifted Youngsters was a much more relevant and interesting direction than Charlie because they walk similar paths. Ilyana, when she manifests her powers, looks evil because the powers are all evil. She faces the temptation of corruption on a, on a moment-by-moment basis, as does he. So I did a story where, at the end of it, she can't face the kids because they'll see her as she really is, and she, she can't bear that because she, like any kid, wants to be 
accepted. And bad enough for her, her brother, big brother's colossus, she's this monster, but she likes it. And she can use her powers for good, even though the way she does it might be evil. But then Magneto, you know, well, they both, they both choose to walk a path of light. They'll watch each other's back. Wow. And that works for her. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is, again, the series, the characters are all a matter of choices, of making choices, of taking nothing for granted, I guess, and always, always striving. For me, the thing, what is lost when one jumps up and says, well, they're now all in their 20s, is like, well, I'm sorry, being in your 20s is boring. <laughs> No, because all of the, the primal decisions of your life, the formative decisions are made. This is, the 20s is where everything is sort of codified and locked in. Yeah. So the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70s are just reiterating the tropes again and again and again. Uh, and that's why if you're trying to make an adjustment later in your life, it is so hard because the ruts are by then so deep. Right. Wow. For me, if I want to tell stories about grown-ups, I'll write an X-Men. The, the, the virtue of the kids is that they are kids. And I think for me as, as creator of the characters, for me as a writer, for me as an editor, for me as a reader, the decisions of later creators and editors to cast aside that aspect of the series takes away one of its unique voices and it's detracts from the value of the concept. Yeah. And that I think it's a shame for me. Part of it was when I was, I did an arc uh, with Butch Geis where they find themselves in the future, bouncing back and forth through time. And in the future, they discover potentially what might become of them is you know danny is a is a hardened valkyrie warrior and bobby is is a billionaire trying to hold the world together you know sort of a a, bra a black brazilian tony stark you know things like that and maybe they don't like what they become but how can we present it prevent it what can we do to make things different you know just it's absurd things like sam meets the girl of his dreams who not only happens to be a rock star, but an intergalactic thief. <laughs> I mean, let, uh, let's deal with hyper, you know, hyper exaggeration, but, but the whole point of the story and more importantly, the sequel that this is the one that, that Jackson drew is how do I introduce my girlfriend to my folk, to my mom? Something, a story Wolverine would never have to tell. Oh, except that he falls in love with Mariko. And there's a half of him, the Japanese half, the samurai half, that is everything that, that she thinks is true in a hero. And it, it is a path that will allow him to be everything that he thinks he should be to be her consort. Mm -hmm. Except the other half of him is Wolverine, and that fucks it all up. <laughs> No, but that, but that's the struggle. But the thing with the thing with Sam and and Lila is, I did a whole issue where the point is, I got to introduce you to my mom, 
but could you kind of dress nice? <laughs> and she shows up looking like a tart. Yeah. Uh, because she wants him to accept her as she is, not as he... And the minute he does, after 18 pages of Sturm and Drag, she blinks out and comes back looking exactly like he wants her to. She was, she was you know, as she put it, she's not an idiot. Yeah. She's not going to humiliate him, and she's not going to embarrass herself or Sam's, you know, mom. She wasn't, she knows how to behave, but she wants her guy to accept her as she is. That was the moment of proof. But Sam had to learn something, too. You know, this, that's, a, that's a story kids can, I hope, can relate to. That's a story you can tell with kids. You couldn't easily tell it with Aurora or with Kurt. Right. Or with, forget about it with Scott. <laughs> Waste of time. But you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yes, yes. The, the New Mutants are all about possibilities and second chances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. What great themes. And that, sadly, is what seems very, very hard to find in comics these days. Well, on that note, <laughs> Chris, I thank you. We're going to wrap things up here. So Sorry I can let you. That. That, no, 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 no. Babbling. We covered a lot, which was fantastic. And Beth said, try to keep it around 45 minutes, so I'm going to respect that. And uh, <laughs> um, Well, if you have any last cool questions, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep my answer brief. But if you, you've you got know, any more. I'm going to actually save my questions for another time that we can talk. And we'll schedule <laughs> something for the future. Okay. Uh, how about that? Not a problem. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Chris. This has been a blast. Appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. You're more than welcome. 